Okay, good evening, everybody. A very special thank you to Mr. and Mrs. Ellie and Jenny Abraham from Detroit for sponsoring tonight's shear in honor of a Rafua Shalema for Ellie's uncle. This is Mrs. Abraham's brother, Zalman Ber Ben Chana. He should be Zoha to have a Rafua Shalema Bekarov. the Torah anytime for sharing this class and many others with uh, everyone who's not able to be here this evening. Can you believe it's been 18 years? I was speaking about this in one of my high school classes and I realized the people I'm speaking to in front of me, they could be in 11th grade, they weren't alive during 9-11. So if for some of us, it's history. It's hard to believe it's been 18 years, but really today is a day where America observes the tragedy that took place. More than 3,000 lives that were lost, tens of thousands of families impacted by something that was so incredibly devastating on so many different levels. It wasn't just the destruction of humanity but it was a destruction of our innocence, of our, perhaps, our false sense of security, assuming that America is, is living in isolation, everyone's safe over here from the, the turbulent, aggressive world outside, we have our independence, we have our, our own little place, no one can touch us. And that was really the mindset of the 90s. Living in the 90s, that was like the, the ideal decade. Economically, things were going well. We all felt very just safe and secure, and we weren't concerned about outside forces until 9-11. And that really changed everything. It's almost been two decades now living in this new world and this new reality with a new anxiety. The world is a very different place. What I'd like to do this evening is, as we observe a day of destruction, in a sense, I'd like to focus on the idea of building. The title of tonight is The Life I Could Have Led. And I think when we focus on this concept of, of being a bona, being someone who could build in many different areas of life, that idea, that concept can really, can really be transformative. The, uh, the very end of the Gemara in Brachos tells us, <laughs> Torah scholars increase peace in the world. Shenemar, like it says in the verse in Yeshaya, <laughs> that your children bring in a sense of harmony and shalom. The Gemara says, <laughs> Don't read it. As benayich, your children, Allah bonayich, rather read it as your builders. Somehow, Chazal are teaching us that Talmidei Chachamim, those people who are committed to Torah study, those Jews who are totally devoted to a Torah lifestyle, they bring shalom into the world, but it's more than that. They're, they're builders. Al tikrei benayich, Allah bonayich. What does that mean to be a builder? 
We had the end of last week's Parsha, very interesting prohibition. When you're approaching a city in order to conquer it during a time of war, do not destroy its trees. Right, from here we derive the prohibition of don't destroy things, don't waste things. And that's an interesting halachic discussion. What exactly is the Torah prohibition? What is the rabbinic extension? But don't cut down a fruit tree. Because you eat from it, it's something you benefit from. It has a function. Do not cut it down. Which is an amazing thing to say. When you're in the, the fierce milchama, you're in, in the battle, who's thinking about, I'm going to cut down the tree, I'm not going to cut down the tree. If it seems like it makes sense, I'll just destroy it. The Torah is saying, no, you have to be extra careful. You've got to be very sensitive. If it bears fruits, if it has a real function, don't cut it down. What's the basic rationale behind that mitzvah? What's the philosophy behind the mitzvah of Baltashkes, not to waste things? So the Sefer Chinuch writes, this is source number three, it's actually in order to train us, to teach us, to love that which is good and beneficial, and to cling to it, to attach ourselves to those things, to those ideas, to those people that are good and beneficial. And it's also teaching us to stay far away from anything evil, anything immoral, or anything destructive. This has always been the path of the righteous. Ohavim shalom, they love peace. Umisamchim betuv habrios, and they derive joy when people are thriving. Umekarvin oson Torah, and they bring them closer to the Torah. That's the way of the righteous. Velo yovdu afilu gargil shelchardel baolam, and they don't waste even a tiny little mustard seed. If it has a use, if I could do something with it, if I could help somebody through this, I'm not going to throw it in the garbage. And they feel a pain. They feel a sense of anguish when they see hashchasa in the world, when they notice destruction. But if they're able to save, if they're able to, to keep something, to maintain something, yet silu kol davr mehashchis bechol kocham, they will try with every fiber of their being to make sure that this person, that this institution, that this tree stays right where it is. Don't destroy life. That's the way of the Hasidim. Velo kein harushayim. But this is not the way of the evil. Achehem shel mazikim, those who are the brothers of evil forces, smechim bashchosas olam. They actually derive joy and pleasure from destruction in the world. That brings them a sense of satisfaction. Vehemem mashchisem es atzmam. And through this mindset, through this mentality, they actually destroy themselves. That's the derech rishayim, that's the way of the wicked. 
So the philosophy behind the mitzvah of Bal Tashchis, do not waste, do not discard if you could still use it, is we cherish everything, everything that has a function, don't just throw it away. And it's a very hard mindset to really get involved with because we live in a society where we throw away everything. Paper plates, plastic uh, forks and knives and spoons, a marriage, right? You name it. If it's not working out, throw it in the garbage. Weiter, move on, try to find something better. So living in a society where we no longer believe in fixing things, we no longer try to maintain things, we just put them away or we destroy them in order to get the next iPhone, it's harder to have this real feeling of, I want things to continue. I want to preserve. Remember reading in the biography of Rav Ari Levin, it had a quote from his diary. He was writing that he had an opportunity one time to walk with the great Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, and they were schmoozing together, walking the streets of Yerushalayim. And as they were deep in conversation, Rav Ari Levin, he just happens to pull off a little leaf from, uh, from a nearby bush. And as soon as he does that, Rav Cook stops and he gasps. Oh my God, what are you doing? And he had no clue. What did I do? You just pulled off a leaf? He's like, yeah, just, you know, in conversation, you know, kind of absent-minded. And Rav Cook said, in my entire life, I've never destroyed anything for no purpose. Right? That was the subtle musr he was sharing with Rav Arya Levin. You have to want things to thrive and grow. Don't waste, don't destroy. But there's something about negativity. There's something about evil that thrives on destruction. So how do we build? We have at the end of this week's Parsha, where it speaks about the mitzvah of remembering a Molech. Remember what a Molech did to us when we left Mitzrayim. They had that brazen, that azus to attack Klal Yisrael. Asher karcha baderech that they came against us on the road. And Rashi famously says, in one of his interpretations, Asher Karcha, that comes from the word Kor, which means to cool down. We were on fire! We were leaving Mitzrayim through seeing open and revealed miracles. Nobody could touch us. And the analogy that's given, right, it was like a scathing hot bath of water. No one would dare jump inside. But a Amalek, the nation of Azus, they had that chutzpah to attack us. They were trying to cool us down. Rashi explains, Sincha v'hifshircha, making us cooler, trying to bring us down to room temperature, meiretichoscha, from our boiling state. Shemi Shmuel elaborates in Rashi, and he says, Hainu the entire mantra of a Amalek, is Bekriyus Ruach, is through the cooling down of the spirit. So not just the nation, but it's clear from many sources, the Koach Hara, the evil force of a Amalek in the world that we still fight against in every generation, is the force that tries to break down inspiration. Shemishmul concludes, he says, Bechlal, 
Hiskimu Biswarm Hakadoshim, we find in many of the holy works. Shiklipa Samalekhi, what is the, the klipa, that negative impact of a Malik? His Karus Veheder Hasimcha, it's the force trying to diminish joy, Vechius, and life, Ba'avodas Hashem, in our Avodas Hashem. So whenever we have this challenge at a national level, or on a communal level, or personally, where it's hard to get inspired, it's hard to really ignite that flame, or maybe I was there 20 years ago, when I was newly a Baal Tshuva, and I was so into davening and Shabbos, I loved Shabbos, and now it's, it's Shabbos, it's something I do. We're fighting against the koach of a malik. We're fighting against that forest that cools down the fire of inspiration. So we see from the end of Shoftim and from the end of our Parsha that evil is closely related to just taking down, right? Crumbling of hashchosas hachayim, the destruction of life, the destruction of inspiration, the destruction of spirituality. How do we build? There's some interesting research coming from different interviews with nurses in palliative care or for hospice. And in their experience with patients who are very close to dying, hearing some of their regrets, right? some of the things they wish they did differently in life. I'll share with you five things that seem to be common pretty universally. The first is, someone will say, I wish I had been more loving to the people who matter most. Many people express sorrow for not having been more understanding, caring, and present for the people who were important to them. I wish I could have spent more time just relating to my children, just listening to what they had to say, just cherishing that magical bond, just being present with them. I wish I had the courage to say I love you more and to really express it. That's one regret. A second is worrying too much. Most of us spend too much time being afraid of what might happen, and we place way too much importance on what other people may think of us. Most people regretted the time they wasted worrying about things beyond their control. You think about it, right? How much do we worry about? And, and you ask yourself the question of all these things that are on my mind, all these things that we're talking about and we're hacking with, how much do I really have control over them? Right. Regret number three, people would say unanimously, I wish I would have been happier. I wish I would have made myself enjoy life more. So it seems kind of strange to say, but most of us really don't know how to have fun. We don't know how to do that. We're too serious. We find uh, that, whatever, it's hard to find the humor in life. We don't joke around. We don't think we're funny, and therefore, life becomes somewhat boring and stale and repetitive. Somebody asked me one time, a student at FAU, he was following somebody at a, a YouTube thing. It sounds like he was a philosopher and a bodybuilder. What an awesome combination. So uh, one of the things he was teaching is he, uh, he told everyone, the main thing in life is don't take life too seriously. So the college student was asking me from a Jewish perspective, 
Would we agree with that? So I told him, not really. We do believe in taking life very seriously. We're here for a purpose. We have something to accomplish. Every moment is precious. But maybe we could work on not taking ourselves too seriously. But we got to be happier. One of the major regrets. Many people express the, the realization at this point in life that they didn't know beforehand that happiness was actually a choice. And they were constantly, therefore, the victim of their situation. They were stuck in old patterns and habits. Fear of change had them pretending to others and themselves. They were content. However, deep down inside, they longed for a life of more laughter and more connection. Regret number four, many people express their regret for not taking care of themselves, both physically and emotionally. Sometimes we go decades without really thinking about Am I really eating the right things? Am I exercising a little bit now and again? Am I just doing the basic hishtadlus to keep myself healthy? And sometimes we get so busy with other things in life, the answer to that question is, no, you're not doing anything. And once in a while you'll look up this diet or that diet or this exercise routine or you speak to a friend that's doing something. But if it's not on the radar, We just don't do it. When do we actually wake up and feel that sense of urgency? Wow, I should really take care of myself? Unfortunately, it's when something is wrong. And sometimes it's too late. And the last universal sense of regret was, I wish I did more for others. Nurses said they heard countless times people who had dreams of making a difference through kindness, through compassion, and acts of service, but they felt ultimately they spent the majority of their lives trapped in their own little bubble, not really looking out and beyond themselves. Those are some common regrets. What are we trying to build? We're trying to build ourselves. We're trying to build others. We're trying to build our relationships, and we're trying to build our environment. I think those are four things we're trying to be bonim. How do we do it? So last week we spoke about how our own emotion can be contagious and that can have a very powerful impact, both positive and negative, on the people around us. This week I'd like to focus on actions and words. How we could build ourselves, other people, relationships, and our environment through our actions that we do or we don't do, and the words that we say or we don't say. We, uh, we haven't had a state of the community address in a while. But I think the last time we had one, we're due for, a, for another one soon in Mertashem. The last time we had one, I mentioned the idea that when people move to a community, so if you're going to Lawrence, you're gonna be living in the five towns, you're gonna move to Queens or Brooklyn, you're not a builder. If you're part of a shul with hundreds and hundreds of people, that has many wonderful benefits to it. And for many families, that could be a much better place to thrive than a smaller community. That's all based on personal preference and tachunas hanefesh. But the one thing you're not, in a big place, in an established place, you're not a builder. When you come to a smaller place, even if you're not here to build, My intention of moving out of town was not to be a pioneer, 
was not to establish a foundation for a Torah community. I moved here for one of many reasons. I love the school. My parents live near there. My in-laws live where I am now, so I had to move. Whatever the cheshbonos were. I didn't move down to be a builder. But by definition, you are a builder. Because when you're in a situation, when you're in an environment where what you do and what you say will have a direct impact on others and therefore a direct impact on what this place will look like five years from now, then like it or not, you're a builder. I wasn't planning on having a third child. I wasn't planning on it, but it happened. And therefore, you're a father, you're a mother, mazel tov. The fact that that wasn't my intention doesn't take away the responsibility of being in that role. So we build through our actions and our words. I want to share with you a Gemara in Sota. This is a Gemara we mentioned during a drusha once on Shabbos. A very powerful Gemara. And the Gemara tells us, You should always have the left hand pushing, right, and the right hand bringing in. Meaning to say, when you're trying to balance in any relationship, between love and limitations, the love should always be the more powerful source. Loka Elisha, and this is in contrast to what Elisha did. Elisha was the great disciple of Eliyohu Navi. What did he do? He pushed away Gechazi, that was his helper, his assistant. He pushed him away with both hands. He was very harsh with him. What is the Gemara talking about? What point in history is this? So the Gemara elaborates, Ve'yelech Elisha Damasik. Lama halach? Why was he going to Damasik? Amr of Yochanan, Shaholach l'achziru l'gechazi b'tshuva. He went to find Gechazi and inspire him or encourage him to do tshuva, to return. Velo chazer, but Gechazi said, no thank you. Amr lo so Elisha tried to push him. You need to do tshuva. We'll see what he did in a moment. But you need to do tshuva. Amrlo Gechazi said back, Kach mikublani mimcha. One second. My philosophy, my halacha is coming from you. I received this tradition from you. You taught me, call me shechata v'hichti eserabim, anyone who sins, but it's not just within their personal realm, but the hichti es harabim, you're also doing something to force the masses to go away from Torah. Ein maspikin biyado lasos tshuva, you have no ability to do tshuva. You do your own chatayim in the privacy of your own home, whatever they may be, the doors of tshuva are always open. But if you do something where you're doing a hate personally, but you're also hichti es harabim, you're causing others to sin, so Gechazi says to Elisha, you taught me. There's no hope. Now the Gemara is troubled by the question, my Avad, what did Gechazi do? He was a pretty good guy. And we're going to learn in a moment, he was a tremendous <coughs> Talmud Chacham. He was one of the greatest Torah scholars of the time. My Avad, what did he do where he thought that he sinned and he caused others to sin? So our Gemara here in Sota just has three words. Very vague, very cryptic. Rabbanin docha mikameh. 
Gehazi pushed away the Talmudic students from Elisha. He pushed them away from Elisha. What, what, what's going on? How did he push them away? So the commentators quote from the Talmud Yerushalmi that expands upon what Gehazi did. Talmud Yerushalmi says, Gehazi Adam Gibor He was a massive Torah giant. However, he had a few issues. One of his challenges was, during the time where Elisha would be sitting there and giving his class, giving his shir, teaching his students, Yoshev lo Gehazi mechutz lishar. Gehazi wasn't inside listening, rather he was sitting outside the gate. Now why was he sitting outside the gate? Was that some form of protest? I don't want to be there in the room with Elisha? Of course not. Likely it's because he was a Torah scholar himself and he was at the shir for many years. He felt that he didn't have to go back. He knows most of the material. So he sat outside doing his own thing, probably learning his own safer. What would happen though was, when the other students would come and they would say, hey, Gehazi is sitting outside during the drasha. Right, the rabbi is inside giving the class and Gehazi is outside. They said to themselves, if he's not going in, so then why should we go in? And they left. So based on what Gehazi did by sitting there, learning Gemara outside of the classroom, so to speak, that indirectly caused the other students to feel this is not so important. We don't have to be doing it. Gehazi is not there. Why do I need to go? So in the Gemara, in the Talmud Bavli says, he pushed away the rabbis. What it's referring to is his lack of action. The fact that he didn't go inside that was goreim, that was an indirect cause for them to say, you know what, maybe this learning is not for me, maybe it's not so necessary, and they left. That's an amazing example, how doing something, right, very innocently, I wasn't trying to make a stand, I wasn't protesting against Elisha or his particular shear. I just feel it's not for me right now. But without bringing into the equation what my action will do to other people around me, without thinking about how will my sitting here doing my own thing impact others, that could transform the environment. He was held responsible for sinning and being machti yasarabim and causing others to sin based on his inaction. And Baruch Hashem, we don't have this here. We're probably, I don't know why, maybe because the Devar Halacha during Minchad Marv is so short, or because everyone has beautiful Derech Eretz. But I've definitely been in places where between Mincha and Marv, when there's a five or seven minute Devar Halacha, there's a mass exodus. Somehow everyone becomes like the greatest CEO on the planet. I quickly have to run outside before the rabbi starts speaking to check all of the texts and emails I received in the last 12 minutes during Mincha because somebody really might need me. So I run outside. So at a personal level, if I'm the guy walking outside, how much have I learned today? How many hours of real Torah do I have under my belt right now, sitting here between Mincha and Marev? 
it depends, hopefully some time, but for many people who are very busy, they don't have any time at all. So here's seven minutes to sit here and to learn something. Is it the most enjoyable thing in the world? Do I love this more than anything else I could possibly imagine? Might I rather be going through the random news things outside of the, maybe, but why not learn some Torah? But more important than that would be the conversation within my head. Maybe I don't even need this. Maybe I know the halacha the rabbi is discussing. Maybe I have no patience to sit here. But what is my leaving going to do for the rest of the shul? When we walk out in mass, what kind of message is that sending? We're basically saying, we don't mean to be saying this, but we're basically saying, we have so many more important things to do than listen to words of Torah. So our actions, although we might not have in mind to make any statement, actions can scream louder than words. Actions are very powerful. In the, the Mishnah Brua, when he speaks about the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, so he says that it's better not to be learning your own personal thing while the Shaliach Tzibor is saying the repetition. And even if you could have in mind at the end of each paragraph, I could listen to the bracha and I could say amen, still better not to learn. What's the reason for that? So explains the Chafetz Chaim in source number nine. Shim halomdim yifnu lelamudam. If the people who learn Torah would allow themselves to learn and have their svarim open, then mehen. Then the people who don't know that much will learn from the scholars. They're not going to take the repetition of the Shemona Esrei with the same level of severity. And what are they going to do? They're going to schmooze. So you should not open the Gemara, because if you open that Gemara, then we're going to start schmoozing. You should, learn out on, you should lose out on your learning because you have to be concerned for the other people. Let them grow up. But it's clear from the halacha, this is something we have to be concerned about. Even if I'm learning and I'm doing the greatest mitzvah in the world, if it's not the right time, it's not the right place, and it could be garim, it could have an indirect negative impact on others, then don't you dare open that Gemara. That's the power of our actions. We could build or we could destroy. When it comes to the words that we share, I'm reminded of a my first time in the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, I went there after high school, to the Chafetz Chaim in Sanhedrin Marchevet, and it was right before the Zman was starting. I'm downstairs in the, in the Cheder Ochel, in the cafeteria room, having a bite to eat, and there's a fellow that I just met for the first time sitting across from me, very nice guy, we're schmoozing a little bit, and then he takes out an apple, and he does like this, closes his eyes, Slowly moves his head back and forth. Baruch Atah Hashem Lokeinu Melech HaOlob Borei Pri HaEitz And he takes a bite. So I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, I'm in the big leagues now. I'm, I'm intimidated. I don't belong here. I never made a bracha like that in my life. I'm in the wrong yeshiva. Somebody help me before it's too late. 
Now it turns out not everybody made brachos like that in the yeshiva. He was unique. But just seeing how someone makes a bracha can have a massive influence on, on how I feel I should be making brachos. The Chobos Levavos writes in the Shar Bachina. This is the section in the Chobos Levavos where he speaks about <coughs> analyzing all of the amazing wonders of nature and really the development of the human being. He says one of the things we should focus on is the Koach Hadibor, the power of speech. Think about that incredible gift that Hashem gave us that we're able to communicate verbally. That I could express to you what's really going on inside of my head and inside of my heart. And I could understand what's going on in your mind as well through this amazing ability of communication. The language or the tongue is really the quill of the heart. And it's the messenger of the, the ideas and the feelings I have inside. And without the power of speech, we wouldn't be able to have real relationships. We'd be like animals. There might be some kind of connection, biologically or otherwise, but communication is the kulmis halev. It's the pen of the heart. That's what words are. They express ideas and feelings. On the other hand, words create thoughts and feelings. The Chobos Levavos writes elsewhere in Shar Cheshbet HaNefesh, where he's speaking about the, uh, the proper way of davening, is bothered by the question, why do we need to say words when we daven? Hashem understands what I'm thinking. Why can't we just meditate? We're just thinking in our heads, and that should be good enough. So he says, the truth is, the thoughts of the mind, they go so quickly, it's hard to really pin them down. And therefore, Chazal felt that they had to establish real words. For what reason? Because what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling is also based on what I'm saying. So it works in both directions. Words are an expression of the soul. They're the, the kulmis halev, right, the pen of the heart. But they also help me create or internalize or enhance or make more real ideas and machshavos and emotions. Words can change ourselves and words can change lives. I remember reading years ago from Benjamin Zander. He's, I think, a well-known conductor, an English conductor living in Boston. And he tells a story of a lady he met who survived Auschwitz. And he said, I learned from this story that the words we say make a very big difference. She went to Auschwitz, she was 15 years old. Her brother was eight and her parents were lost. And she told me as follows. We were on the train together going to Auschwitz. And I looked down and I saw my brother's shoes were missing. I said, why are you so stupid? Can't you keep your things together? For goodness sake. Now, obviously she was saying that not because she was mean, but she was caring about her brother and she was so frustrated. 
Why are you so stupid? The way an elder sister might speak to a younger brother wasn't so out of place. Unfortunately, it was the last thing she ever said to him because she never saw him again once they got off the train. He didn't survive Auschwitz. When she was Zohar to survive Auschwitz, the first thing she did when she walked out of that camp is she made a vow. Right? She took an oath. And she said, from this day on, I will never say anything that couldn't stand as the last thing I ever say. I will never say anything that could not stand as the last thing I would ever say. That's a hard level to live up to, but it's definitely something to strive for. You think of the morning of 9-11, saying goodbye, a wife saying goodbye to her husband or vice versa, going to one of the Twin Towers. What was that conversation? I guarantee you, out of all the 3,000 people that perished that day, nobody knew when they left the home in the morning, this would be the last words I would ever share with my mother, father, sister, brother, wife, or husband. Nobody knew that. Imagine walking away still holding on to resentment because there was an argument the night before and leaving off with that forever. Amazing documentation. There's a fellow, Sean Rooney, who was in the South Tower. And after the plane hit, he called his wife immediately, even before he knew exactly what happened. It was about 9.30 in the morning when he called, and his wife said that at that point he was in the 105th floor, trying to find a way out. And he told her that so far he had no success. He went to the stairway. It was filled with smoke. His wife, Beverly, asked him as she heard him over the phone, does it hurt you when you breathe? And he paused for a moment and he said, no. And when she tells over the story, she writes, he still loved me enough at that moment to lie to me, but I knew that he was in pain. After a while, we stopped talking about escape routes and we began talking about all the happiness we shared during our lives together. I told him that I wanted to be there with him. But he said, no, no, he wanted me to live a full life. As the smoke got thicker, he just kept on whispering, I love you, I love you, over and over again. I just wanted to crawl through the phone lines to be with him and hold him one last time. Then I heard a sharp crack followed by a sound of an avalanche as the building began to collapse. I called his name into the phone over and over, and I just sat there pressing the phone to my heart. We may not know when our last conversation will take place. We live in a world of such uncertainty. But to try to live by that mantra, that when I'm leaving for the day, when I'm parting for now, when I'm saying goodbye to my children at school, but we never know what could happen. We never know what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has in store for the future. To leave each day with the words that I say are the words that I'd feel okay if those were the last words <coughs> I ever said to you. We could change ourselves and we could change others. We could build and we could destroy based on our actions and based on the koach or the power of words. So getting back to the hospice patients, if we could commit as we go into 
Rosh Hashanah, getting closer to very special, awesome days. I will be more loving to the people that matter the most. I'll have the courage to actually express my feelings more and be more vulnerable with you. I will not allow myself to worry too much. I'm going to stop myself from going there because all of that worry will ultimately not really result in anything productive. I will choose to infuse more happiness in my life through allowing myself to enjoy the moment and to be a little bit silly. You got to get a little bit silly. If that means putting on some music, dancing with the kids, something with your spouse, got to infuse the simcha. This is one of the major regrets that people have when it's too late to have the simcha. I will take care of my health, both physically and emotionally. Perhaps I've neglected that until now, but for no longer. Small steps in the right direction can make major differences years from now. And last but not least, I will really try not to be self-absorbed in my work or anything else I'm into, but I want to be there for others because I know when it's going to be later on, I want to look back and feel, I spent so much time and effort and money on other people. That's what I want to feel. I had a conversation recently with a couple where the wife was, was somewhat struggling with, with Jewish stuff. We'll leave it vague. And she has certain things she would want. On the other hand, she's in the, the from community and there's always that that balance. So I asked her the question, right, her and her husband together. I said, right now you have certain things you'd like to see, certain things that make you feel good. And association with the outside world could almost give you a sense of freedom, especially if there's baggage or background within the Jewish world. I get it. But don't picture yourselves right now, parents in your 30s or 40s. Picture yourself sitting at the Seder table when you're 89 and 87 years old. And you're going to be sitting there, with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. What do you want to see in front of you? What do you want? You want a whole bunch of assimilated Jews because back 30, 40, 50 years ago you had some mishagas? You're going to want to see Erlich Hayidin. You're going to want to see people who are maintaining the legacy and the Mesorah and authenticity of what it means to live as a Jew. That's what you really want. That's where you want to be. Sometimes thinking about years and decades from now can bring the present into crystal clarity. Sefer Echinach tells us, Zehu derech Hasidim. Conceptually speaking, there's always confusing and complicated decisions in life. What's the right thing to say? What's the right thing to do? But if we always think along the lines of, if I say this line, am I building or am I destroying? If I do this, am I taking down the relationship or am I enhancing the relationship? Am I following the derech hasidim, the way of the righteous? Am I building myself? Am I building you? Am I building my environment? Am I building my relationship? Oftentimes that one question will guide us to the right answer. We should be Zoha to live the life we could live and to be the person we could be and not to have regrets in the end. A good Shabbos.